Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. More than 50 years after the civil rights movement, it's quite clear that there are still glaring racial inequities all across the United States. In his new book, Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice, Jim Freeman, a leading civil rights lawyer and director of the University of Denver's Social Movement Support Lab, looks into the inequities that continue to plague America's communities of color and asks, who's making money off of it? This book is published by Cornell University Press and brings Jim Freeman to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much, Leonard. It's great to be here with you. You write that there are hidden strategies and public policies that keep people of color less educated, policed at uh, impossible rates and in constant fear of deportation created by a small group of ultra wealthy individuals who profit from racial inequality. Um, how do they profit from it? Yeah, well, I, I think it might be illustrative to talk about Dante Wright. Um, since, you know, he was, he was just mentioned in, in the news mm -hmm. break. Um, you know, it was, it was almost one year ago that, that George Floyd was killed not far from there. Right. And, and we heard over and over again that it was a wake up call for the nation. But the thing is that we didn't actually wake up, right? If we had, we would have come together as a, as a country around real solutions to these issues. We would have dismantled the vastly oversized and violent criminal justice system that is being used within black and brown communities as a catch-all solution for an enormous variety of public health and safety issues, right? These are the should policies we, and systems. Sorry, go ahead. Should we be surprised that uh, many of these things take place in the North? We usually associate racial uh, inequity with the South. Well, I think, you know, the, I, I think these systems exist in black and brown communities across the country. Um, and they're, you know, at the very root of what killed George Floyd. Um, and because we couldn't summon the collective urgency to address them, you know, the now Dante Wright is dead. So, but we need to talk about why we haven't addressed them because it's not, it's not because we don't know how it's not because we don't have the solutions. It's because there's a very well-funded opposition that stands in the way. So if we break that down, you know, you have, organizations like the American Legislative Exchange Council, which represents hundreds of the largest corporations in the US, um, that has been working for decades to pass these various tough on crime policies that we have on the books. You have ultra wealthy individuals who've poured tens of millions of dollars into various think tanks and advocacy organizations that have been pushing this, this agenda and, con and continue to do so today. So one of those think tanks, the Heritage Foundation, after the uprising against systemic racism last summer, what they decided to do was launch a back the blue police pledge that has now been signed by 200 members of Congress. Um, so these are 200 um, members of Congress who have vowed to continue supporting the status quo in law enforcement um, in this country. So um, in other words, they're, they're organizing in defense of this system. Um, uh, so not to stop people from being killed, but in support of the people responsible for killing them. And, you know, one of those members of Congress who signed that pledge is Senator Tom Cotton, one of the most influential and powerful Republicans in the country, who tweets out just the other day that in the US, we have a major under incarceration problem. <laughs> Um, now, bear in mind, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. So, you know, I think this is really what modern day systemic racism looks like, is that we implement these public policies that we know for a fact will inflict needless harm on large groups of people of color, that we know will perpetuate racial inequities, that we know will even lead to people being killed. Um, and yet when that harm becomes apparent, we fail to address it appropriately in significant part because it is economically beneficial for the ultra wealthy to not do so. Well, along with the Heritage Foundation, you list policy groups like ALEC, Americans for Prosperity, the Club for Growth, Americans for Tax Reform, the Libre Initiative, Freedom Works, the Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, uh, the State Policy Network, uh, and its affiliates, the Federalist Society. Have I left any out? 
there, there are definitely more in there. Um, the NRA, although right. the NRA now is kind of toothless, but uh, those other groups are quite effective. They are. And, you know, they've they've been very effective um, uh, in advancing this agenda and in recruiting, you know, other folks um, to to um, uphold it. Right. So those organizations are overwhelmingly funded by a very small number of people, but they are incredibly um, effective at um at putting out messages and ideas and policies that um, essentially deputize lots of other folks um, to um, to uh, to defend um, and even expand systemic racism. So I thought it was important um, in the book to to name them because if we're ever going to um, to really dismantle the system, which is so devastating for so many families, for so many communities, then I think we have to be very clear about um, who is supporting that agenda um, and who's standing in the way of, um, of defeating it. You cited systemic racism, but don't you call it strategic racism? That's right. I, you know, I think um, it's, it's very encouraging now, you know, particularly after last summer, that more and more people are are acknowledging uh, the glaring racial inequities across the U.S. that are caused by systemic racism. But you know, I think the problem is for most of us that's a that's a rather abstract concept. You know, we recognize the effects of it, but we don't really see it as having a clear cause. Um, and if we do, and you we, say we that, that you might not have seen this situation in the same way just ten years ago. That's true. You know, I honestly I stumbled onto it. Um, this idea that um, this idea of strategic racism that folks are actually defending or expanding systemic racism in ways that result in, in greater wealth, greater economic or political power for, for themselves. You know, I, I've been working for many years with communities of color across the U.S. to address these issues. And, and for most of that time, I thought, I thought our enemy was ignorance. You know, in other words, I believe that all we had to do was educate people on the realities of systemic racism and how to address them. And that would be enough to fix. And we we tended to view systemic racism as having no cause beyond bigotry. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that that's exactly how I looked at it. And and if I'd only been working, let's say, in one geographic area, I'd probably still believe that. But because I was working across many different cities and many different states, I began to see these patterns and the opposition we faced. You know, I noticed that the same organizations and the same unjust policies kept popping up all across the country. So I, you know, one week I'd be in Tallahassee, Florida, and then I'd see this really harmful education or criminal justice policy um, that pop up out of nowhere. And then this, then I'd be in Denver or Springfield, Illinois, the next week. And the same thing, the same policy would appear with the same language, you know? So I got, I got curious and I started digging into the people and organizations that were driving these efforts. And I found that I kept running into the same small group of names and, you know, I realized that while the communities I was working with were fighting back against racial inequities, in many cases, were fighting for their very lives, these billionaires and multimillionaires were actively opposing their efforts, and they were, in effect, promoting the perpetuation of racial injustice. And you name some names, the Koch family, we've, I'm sure most people would have come up with that, the Walton family, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Fortune 500 companies, that include General Electric, Bank of America, ExxonMobil, some leading uh, hedge funds, uh, you say also use their economic and political clout. Uh, but uh, they're, they're perpetuating these racial inequities, but are how are they getting rich thanks to racism? Yeah, um, so, you know, there's- Or richer. There's a, richer, right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, uh, what they've been doing, and if you look at their agenda, um, their political agenda, and what they've been um, promoting over the years, they've been remarkably consistent. Um, and so there's, you know, a number of ways that they um, that they gain additional wealth. I spill a lot of ink about this in the book, but to, to sort of sum it up, you know, in, in some ways, they profit very directly such as from 
um, you know, what was come to be known as the prison industrial complex from privatized immigrant detention facilities from school privatization um, efforts. Um, that's certainly one way, but another way is, you know, all of those um, examples plus many, many others um, what they ultimately do is they reduce the tax obligations of the wealthy because mm. what they um, um, almost always lead to is a reduction in spending on public services within communities of color, right? We've really cut back over the years on our investments in anything other than really mass criminalization and incarceration within those communities. And that, and that benefits them directly. But what it also does is, you know, I think it, it, it prevents people of different races and classes from recognizing and coming together around their common interests, right? So the, the criminal justice system, for example, is extremely effective at controlling us, at dividing us and causing us um, not to recognize, you know, like we said, the, the, the things we share in common. So that really helps to main, helps um, folks in power to really maintain that power. So, you know, as one obvious example, last summer, following George Floyd being killed when we were all pro protesting, it was the police that were being used to prevent those protests from ever getting to the point where we really challenged the power structure. You know, that was the, the break um, on democracy in that case. Um, but there are a variety of other ways. I mean, the, these systems preserve the existing racial hierarchy, which obviously benefits those in power. Um, it helps their preferred political candidates who support their other priorities um, to win elections. You know, things like, you know, criminal justice and immigration. They're extremely effective wedge issues um, that have really pitted people against each other um, and and really siphoned off votes um, in favor of folks who support their other economic priorities. So there are a number of ways in which it benefits them um, as, you know, as a strategy for maintaining the existing power structure. Well, I guess on today's Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Jim Preman. Uh, who has written a book called Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice. It's published by Cornell University Press. You say that you came to the realization that the opponents on every issue, whether reforms in education, voting rights, or criminal justice, had almost the same talking points each time. But isn't there some diversity of political opinions in, in the, uh, the people that you cite? You know, absolutely. You know, one of the you know one of the the clear examples um, in the in the book was you know around the school privatization movement. Um, there are um, you know folks like um, Bill Gates have um, have you know gotten a lot of publicity. They're very well known for for their support of, of charter schools um, over the years. But there's some other folks who, um, frankly, until I started researching the book, I didn't know were also heavily invest, invested um, in some of the same organizations. So, you know, one thing about, about that issue, for example, is it brings together some very strange bedfellows. Um, so one of, the, one of the people I mentioned in the book is Charles Koch. Right from you know, one one half of the Koch brothers, um, as they become known, um, the other half died and uh, a year ago. Right, and you know they have you know Bill Gates and Charles Koch have very very different public mm -hmm. reputations. Um, but when it comes to this issue, um, they're actually quite aligned. They fund several of the same organizations, um, and beyond that, you know the 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 additional organizations they each fund work with each other. Um, as allies in promoting school privatization. Now, that doesn't mean Bill Gates and Charles Koch have the same goals and philosophies. Um, and, you know, when it comes to Bill Gates in particular, I have no reason to doubt that um, his intentions in funding um, uh, the privatization of schools, um, I have no reason to doubt that his intentions were pure. Um, but what I think hasn't gotten enough attention is how much damage that's caused, how much um, how destructive that's been within many communities as public schools are closed, as young people are and families are really traumatized by that, as the, you know, the dramatic restructuring a lot of these systems has really left a lot of young people behind. Um, but, you know, what I really wanted to show in the book is that, you know, 
whatever his intentions were, he's caused real harm. And his support for charter schools has been pivotal, pivotal in paving the way for far more radical um, goals of, of people like Charles Koch and the Waltons and, and Betsy DeVos, um, who are really trying to eliminate the public school system. Um, and, and, and what do they gain by that? Uh, I'm not sure I understand why getting rid of public schools uh, would uh, in any way enrich these people. Um, don't they just see what they're doing as, uh, as, as trying to help society, at least in, in, through their distorted ways of seeing the world? Yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly some people that that um, some of those folks who do believe that that they are that they are are helping. Um, but you know, from the perspective of um, you know uh, folks who have a more libertarian bent um, on these issues, you know, they don't want there to be a public system at all because um, it's a public system they uh, they can't profit off of it, and they also have no control over it. Um, which means that they can be made to pay for things that they don't want to pay for. So, you know, from uh, how this is actually played out in most cases is that, you know, the more charter schools there are in a system that usually correlates with reductions um, in funding overall. So they're cutting expenses and this, none of this should be surprising. You know, the, the private sector is very consistent um, across, you know, um, all sectors, all industries, when they go in, what they want to do is capture as much profit for themselves as they can while reducing expenses that don't benefit them. Right. And, and so I don't think we should expect it to be any different in the education system. And in fact, as it's played out, it hasn't been any different where, you know, the privatized system is not spending as much on services for, you know, for young people with, with disabilities, for example. They're not spending as much on teachers because they're favoring a less experienced, non-unionized teaching force. Um, so, um, you know, this is all sort of very consistent um, with what they've been doing for years. And, you know, from their perspective, the public education system is inefficient because it's a $600 billion industry that is generating no profits for them. So for them, it's a new market that they can so, profit from and exploit. So you propose ending school privatization. Would that be legal? And, and what about religious schools? Yeah, so no, what, what I was uh, proposing in the book um, is not ending private education, um, religious or, or non-religious, um, merely the continued expansion of um, of charter schools and school voucher programs uh, because of um, not only the impact that they're having on, um, on communities of color, but on the real threat that they pose to um, the educational opportunities of really uh, almost every young person of every family in the U.S. Um, as these um, systems continue to grow as they have over the last 10 or 15 years in particular. Um, and they start, they're going to start swallowing up more and more schools. So I think, you know, whether you feel like you're directly affected by that or not, um, if we don't do something about it very soon, you will be. You write about Anna Jones, who was concerned about the efforts of displacing many children and families when the Chicago public school system closed 50 schools in 2013 especially since so many of the school closures uh, were concentrated in black and brown neighborhoods that were already struggling. But what reason did then Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who's a Democrat, uh, give for, uh, for saying that the school's closures were necessary? Yeah, I mean, the, um, there's, there's, in, in that case, there were a variety of, um, of rationales offered from you know, schools being um, uh, the, their student populations having dropped over the years. Um, so they were underutilized. Underutilized, right, was the term that was often used. Um, and, you know, I think that's a key, a key point when, you know, if you just look at most of the press or most of the coverage around charter schools, it's um, almost always about there's this new charter school that's doing this, you know, that's doing this thing. Maybe they have a new innovative education model, model. maybe they're um, focusing on a particular population of students, whatever it is. We talk about opening these schools and it's, you know, um, considered to be 
um, exciting and beneficial. What we don't talk about is the impact of those decisions, right? Because if you have a, let's say a, a, a network of a hundred schools in a city and you open up 10 more um, and you start, you know, pulling more students into those schools where there's going to be an impact on those other hundred schools. And in many cases, it's a very, very dramatic impact. So in Chicago for, you know, 15 years or so before those 50 schools were closed, you're opening up more and more charter schools um, all across the city, pulling students from, um, from public schools. And so what ultimately happened is you get to the point where the mayor says, well, these schools are now underutilized. Well, they're underutilized because, um, because you opened up these other schools and you never really invested properly um, in the public schools that you already had. So now we're going to close all these schools down and it's going to be incredibly traumatic for um, the students who are affected. And not only that, but now we're going to close down these schools and all the public schools, you know, their student populations go up dramatically. So all of a sudden you have 50 kids in a kindergarten class. You know, you have schools where you don't have enough space for students to have desks. Right. You have these schools where, um, you know, there's not even enough materials to give each each child a book. You know, they have to do, um, you know, uh, uh, photocopied pages from the book. So, you know, I, I wanted to really shine a light on the fact that, you know, uh, these these uh, that not enough attention has been placed on the harm that this does both in the short term, but then in the long term in advancing a political agenda that um, I think even folks who support charter schools that they don't agree with. Why weren't uh, some of these problems addressed when you were a commissioner on the White House Initiative on Education Excellence for African-Americans under President Obama? Well, you know, I, as you as you mentioned previously, you know, this issue, um, like all the issues in the book, actually, that I cover, um, it started out as um, as a a Republican priority. In fact, you know, school privatization, um, you know, the school voucher um, concept goes back to the 1950s and Milton Friedman, so far right wing priority. But over the years, it was adopted by um, by many you know Democratic politicians as well, um, including um, the Obama administration, who's um, Secretary of Education, Arnie, Arnie Duncan, was actually responsible for opening up a lot of those charter schools that subsequently led to, um, subsequently led to uh, the 50 schools being closed and, mm-hmm. and the real damage that was caused. So, you know, addressing those issues um, uh, wasn't a priority uh, of that administration. In fact, um, they pumped um, uh, a tremendous amount of new resources um, into expanding charter schools. And President Obama comes from Chicago, where, it, where some of this was happening. Um, have we ever in the history of this country been willing to create a, a truly equitable education system to put children of color on equal footing with white children? In, even in cities like Chicago or New York or Los Angeles? No, and I, I, you know, I think in some ways, you know, inequity is the defining feature of our education system. You know, there's never, there's never been a golden age of education in, in this country. There's never been a time in which you could go into communities of color and expect to find the same level of educational opportunities um, that you would find in predominantly white communities. And I, I think in, in many ways that is, you know, the, the great... Um, and tragic disgrace um, of our education system. So, you know, with that as our backdrop, I can, you know, certainly understand the 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 inclination to want to latch on to charter schools or school vouchers or some of these other initiatives um, as a way to, um, you know, disrupt that system or um, or, you know, secure a better opportunity for one's child. I totally get that. Um, but what I wanted to do in the, in the book is, is, is try and expose the ideology behind that. Um, and the way, um, it's really being used as a Trojan horse. Um, and, um, and unfortunately I think a lot of very well-intentioned people, um, are, are being hoodwinked, um, by, um, by this system in ways that, 
that have, that's, that's been very harmful. Now, you, you focus on education, on uh, our prison, our incarceration, and on immigration, but couldn't we apply the same type of analysis to low-wage labor, healthcare inequities, environmental degradation, and, and voter suppression? Yeah, 100%. Um, and, you know, I, and, and I, you know, one thing I wanted to do with the book is, is to highlight, you know, this idea of strategic racism, what it looks like, um, in these, in these different systems. Um, but also in the hopes that other people would, you know, do the next, do the next piece that looks at the same dynamics within these other issues, issue areas that you, that you mentioned, you know, environmental issues, women's rights issues, um, like you say, voting rights issues and so on. Um, because the, the same dynamics are there. Um, this is, um, all part of, um, uh, the, the inequities that not only, um, are, are really devastating for black and brown communities, but that are, um, contributing to, um, really astronomical um, wealth inequality and 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 really an inequality in terms of political power and how um, a very small number of people have exponentially more influence over the public policy decisions decisions that affect the rest of us. Well, is this exclusively a racial issue, or do the ultra wealthy use their wealth as uh, power to manipulate and and oppress? pretty much everyone who isn't part of their group. Yeah, no, their, um, their portfolio is uh, far more diversified than that, you know, and that, that actually uh, was an eye opener for me um, when I was in, as I was researching the book, because as I was looking into how they were using their money in ways that that preserved and expanded systemic racism. And I learned more about where they direct their money and the ideology that guides those decisions. I realized how heavily invested they are in pushing a political agenda that's been deeply harmful to most, to most white Americans as well. So, you know, in other words, if, if white people examine the reasons their lives are far more difficult than they need to be, they will likely eventually run into the same set of organizations and individuals who are leading the opposition against racial equality. And, you know, I, for one, was astonished to discover just how enormous an influence the ultra wealthy have on, on my life and that of every other white person I know. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. My guest today on Let It Locate at Large is civil rights lawyer and director of the University of Denver's social movement support. Uh, uh, what is it? No, now I've totally lost it. Poor labs. Uh, support lab. Uh, uh, and. Uh, author of the the book that we're discussing, Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice. It's uh, Jim Freeman. Uh, we uh, we brought, mentioned uh, incarceration before. Well, for, before we get to that, uh, in a recent decision by Amazon, BlackRock, Google, Warren Buffett, and hundreds of other companies and executives, uh, they, they decided to sign on to a new statement opposing any discriminatory legislation that would make it harder to to vote. So uh, is that an anomaly? Um, I don't know that I would call it um, necessarily an anomaly. Um, um, I mean, maybe it is. Like, I think it's, you know, one thing that, that folks have always um, that policymakers and, you know, very politically powerful, ultra wealthy people have already been consistent about is they will, um, they will only do, um, uh, things like that when they are pressured to do so. Um, it's almost the anomaly is when someone does something that they haven't been, um, pressured For example, to do. Well, we saw with Delta where they changed their statement. 
about the Georgia law. Right. So, you know, what I think it is more than an anomaly is a reflection of or a manifestation of the movement that's being built around around racial justice. And and that I think is critically important. Uh, we need to make it unsustainable for folks to um, to take these positions um, or to support these efforts. I mean, one of the things that I think is really disturbing um, is that you know, when I say folks have been supporting systemic racism and defending systemic racism, it's not like they're out talking about it in public. You know, when we talk about the the efforts of Alec and all the large corporations that are um, feeding bills to state legislators around the country, most of that's done in secret. Hmm. Um, and um, so, uh, so I, I do think we have to expose that and keep um, putting pressure on these um, on these companies, on these ultra wealthy people, so that it becomes politically unsustainable to do anything other than support the dismantling of systemic racism. Uh, since you uh, cite the creation of the world's largest prison population and uh, the, uh, the most extreme anti-immigrant policies as uh, being supported by these people, uh, I'm wondering, don't many businesses rely on inexpensive immigrant labor and, uh, and people who uh, are finding it hard to get jobs after they're released from prison? They do, um, which is, you know, uh, uh, in, in significant part, how um, how the ultra wealthy benefit from these endeavors. Right. So if you think about immigration, um, you know, there has um, for a long time, um, organizations like Alec um, and still to this day um, have been pushing against comprehensive immigration reform or any. Um, any effort that would address the fact that we have 11 million undocumented folks um, who are um, really being exploited and discriminated against um, all across the U.S. They have, um, uh, in secret, been pushing um, legislators to not address that issue. So um, one of the questions is, one of the things you might ask is, is, is why would that be? Um, and and, you know, if you think about it from, from their perspective, um, the, the most advantageous um, immigration system would be one in which um, uh, folks um, are living in an unstable enough situation that they, uh, that they would be willing to take very low paying jobs, that they wouldn't rock the boat in any way politically. Um, but that also um, would allow them to stay here um, and, uh, uh, and not sort of self-deport, as some people like to say, which is why when there are really extreme um, anti-immigrant policies passed in the state, sometimes you'll see corporations stand up against those because, you know, they still do need low-wage workers. Um, but, um, but still, over the years, they've been heavily funding um, politicians, particularly Republican ones, who have prevented comprehensive immigration reform from being passed. And they have never, you know, you think about all the issues that large corporations have taken a very public stand on collectively over the years, dozens and dozens of issues affecting their, um, their shared interests. They have never collectively stood up in favor of comprehensive immigration reform. So, you know, I think the best indicator of where someone's interest lies um, are where, you know, they're willing to be active politically. Um, and so for the most part, they've been content to sit back and continue benefiting um, from these policies or, you know, work behind the scenes to, to make sure that um, the problem isn't actually addressed. How do you differentiate between the wealthy who advocate for policies they believe in while having blind spots to their racial ramification and those who are seeking to profit off of other people's misery? Yeah, you know, the way I think about it, Leonard, is, you know, I, I can, you know, it matters um, if... You know, I if I burn down my neighbor's house, it matters whether it was done out of negligence 
or done out of malice. But at the end of the day, they still don't have a house because of me. So, you know, either way, it's my responsibility to fix the damage I've, I've caused and ensure that it doesn't happen again. And I think it's the same with racial justice. You know, we all have a responsibility to stop aiding and abetting systemic racism, to address whatever racial blind spots we have and repair whatever harm we've caused, regardless of whether our actions were well-intentioned or not. You know, that's the only way we ever create a just and equitable country. But, you know, unfortunately, when it comes to systemic racism, many of the individuals who've caused the most harm have been very effective in deflecting blame and avoiding responsibility. Um, and I think co collectively, the rest of us have allowed our attention to be diverted from the most important questions that should be asked about any social policy. Number one, who is harmed? And number two, who benefits? And the fact is that the actions of the ultra-wealthy, as I call them, racism profiteers, have undoubtedly harmed millions of people of color in ways that have been profoundly beneficial for themselves. And they need to be held accountable for that, regardless of what their stated intent may have been. Don't those racism profiteers uh, prevent flagrant injustices uh, from being addressed by, by pitting white communities against communities of color? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. You know, all of those issues that, that we've talked about already and that I, that I write about in the book, um, criminal justice, immigration, and education, they've been very effective wedge issues, you know, that, um, that cause us to lose sight of our common interests. Um, and, um, and, and as you say, you know, pitting communities against each other, oftentimes black communities against white communities or, or black communities against Latinx communities and so on. You know, there's, there's always another community somewhere that, you know, um, that, you know, that we perceive to have more crime issues or to have, you know, um, to have, you know, uh, you know, uh, immigration issues that are manifesting in, in some ways. And, you know, the politicians have been very effective over the years um, in exploiting that. And the ultra wealthy have been very effective over the years in exploiting that for their own gain, whether political or economic. What, what you call the Juan Crow discrimination against undocumented immigrants. Um, uh, there are 11 million of them who could become U.S. citizens. Uh, isn't that the history of the United States? My my grandparents were, came here from other countries. And uh, while they probably had a hard time and in some cases uh, was not all that easy to get into the country, eventually they did and they became U.S. citizens. Right. And, you know, that's, I mean, we've that's always had those problems. We've always had those situations uh, before World War II. Uh, we prevented uh, a lot of people from from Europe who were trying to escape uh, the Nazis from coming here. We had anti-Asian discriminated laws uh, discriminated against immigration from by Asians. Now it's Latinx people. Right. I mean, and you're exactly right. I mean, that's the story of, you know, uh, every, you know, every white person in the U S somewhere down the line. Um, and, you know, imagine, um, if, you know, our ancestors, the ones who came here, if they had faced, um, what, um, probably Latinx folks face today with regard to ice, you know, with regard to, you know, uh, a deportation force that, um, is honestly terrorizing communities um, across the U.S. You know, I for the book, I um, I went down to to Arizona, the Phoenix area, and I interviewed um, a lot of immigrant families about how um, uh, the criminalization of immigrants um, by police, by um, the sheriff's department, there by by ICE, how that's affected them. And it was, um, you know, I've been doing this work for a long time and it was um, one of the most heartbreaking, maybe the most heartbreaking experiences of my life as I was interviewing these folks who, uh, this was just a couple of years ago, um, who um, were terrified to leave their own houses because they were so afraid 
that they would get picked up by an ICE officer or a police officer, and they would be separated from their partners, from their kids um, for months, years, potentially forever. Um, they were terrified to leave their own house. In fact, many families, they had a rule that nobody ever went anywhere alone. Um, they, if they were going to go to the grocery store, they had to go as a whole family. Um, if, you know, the, um, uh, for a child to go to school, they weren't allowed to walk to school. You had, you, you went there as a whole family and dropped them off and went there later in the day as a whole family to pick them up. Um, it was heartbreaking to me to see the impact of these policies, um, um, reached the point where, you know, for me, it was, it was the only thing I could, I could relate it to in my experience in my life was reading the diary of Anne Frank, you know, where some, where it was so severe, people's fear and terror was so severe that they couldn't even leave the house. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just don't think most people realize what that's like um, even today how devastating it is that we haven't been able to solve this issue and find a way to do really the only moral thing um, and, um, and address these realities for 11 million people. Well, but it also applies to uh, black people driving down a highway in many cases. Uh, we have serious problems in this country. Uh, my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org is Jim Freeman, civil rights lawyer, director of the University of Denver's Social Movement Support Lab, and author of Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice. It's published by Cornell University Press. Uh, we have the largest incarceration population in the world. Um, now, what about that? Uh, you say that uh, that there may not be a more significant racial justice issue in the U.S. than the huge investment in the criminalization of people of color, um, in contrast to the underinvestment in the systems and strategies that would create healthier, safer, and more equitable communities nationwide. Uh, and, and that's led to, um, well, <laughs> it's... Address that first. Yeah, I mean, you know, the um, uh, we recently released a um, uh, a new resource called uh, defunddata.org, where we um, we looked into how criminal justice spending has expanded over time. So we have data for every state for over a hundred of the largest cities and counties um, in the U S and then we also did a deep dive into the budgets, the current budgets for the 25 largest cities in the U S to show um, to really, to really learn more about where um, cities were investing their resources and, you know, uh, and folks can go check that out for themselves to see what it, what it's like in their communities and their states. Um, but it's really shocking um, how heavily we invest in, um, in police, in the criminal justice system, um, compared to how little um, we, uh, we invest in mental and behavioral health, in affordable housing, in you know, all of these other systems and strategies that are really essential um, for creating healthy, safe, and equitable communities, and and really far more effective at preventing crime than um, than the criminal justice system is. Um, so it's really become um, thoroughly distorted. It's really a, a perverse um, public investment strategy, um, and so I think that's why you see so many communities who are um, really starting to interrogate that issue. I mean, these are the sort of defund campaigns um, that are happening around the country um, because folks realize that, that their money, um, their tax dollars are not being used in ways that align with, with their values and with their needs. Um, and, um, you know, for a long time, that wasn't, um, 
even a conversation that that folks were were able to have because there was so much um, uh, uh, emphasis around expanding tough on crime policies and so on. Um, but one thing that's very exciting right now is that um, that more folks are stepping into this space where they're starting to ask, you know, are are these strategies really the most effective at keeping us all healthy and safe? And we had a guest on our show earlier this week, Marlon Peterson, who's written a book called Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song. He spent uh, 10 years or so in prison and now is advocating for the elimination of prisons on the whole. Yeah. And, you know, there's, um, um, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, you know, when I started writing the book, um, I you know, I didn't think of myself as somebody who was supportive of an abolitionist um, approach. Um, and, you know, having the opportunity to sit and write um, and really think about these issues in depth for the first time, it really changed how I thought about it. Um, but, you know, I think, Leonard, one thing that we really have to confront um, is is this issue is, you know, when it comes to criminal justice matters, um, we continue to allow law enforcement officials to dictate criminal justice policies. Um, in other words, you know, when it comes to how these decisions are made, the tail usually wags the dog. You know, instead of the public deciding how police and prosecutors should be enforcing the law to best meet community needs, um, it is often law enforcement officials who decide how they will be enforcing the law against the public. And, and police and prosecutors are granted enormous power to actually make the law. Um, you know, this might strike many listeners as, as odd. You might think that the role of law enforcement is to do just that, to enforce the laws that the rest of us come up with. Well, we have a um, number of prominent cases right now that might suggest it doesn't always work that way. Uh, it certainly doesn't, you know. <laughs> um, you know, the, um, the reality is that law enforcement groups have become a major political force that is both extremely active in making policy and extremely protective of their power and their budget. And so when it comes to criminal justice policy issues, law enforcement groups are often far and away the most impactful voices, you know, exponentially more influential than any ordinary citizens who will be the ones subjected to the failed tough on crime policies that they consistently advocate. And we have just a couple of moments, a minutes left, and I do want to address one other thing. Um, what do you think should be done about companies and banks that profit off of closing public schools, mass incarceration, anti-immigrant uh, policies, considering the fact that they provide many of the products and services that most U.S. residents use on a daily basis? Should we be boycotting them? Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't discourage that. I mean, I think the problem, though, is that this is not an exclusive group. As you say, like these, these are the, you know, the, the companies that are uh, responsible for a lot of these policies are, are, you know, um, the, uh, a huge political force. So um, I think ultimately we have to get to a point where we can make a collective demand that these companies and the ultra wealthy as a group, that they need to both stop advancing strategic racism, and not only that, but support the effort to dismantle the systems that perpetuate racial inequity. And they either do it, or we find other solutions that limit their power so that the rest of us can do it. Um, because there really is only one effective counterweight um, to this kind of power, the power of organized wealth, and that's the power of organized people. So what I suggest in the book is that um, we need um, to start building stronger multiracial mass movements um, in support of uh, racial justice and, and a political agenda that is more responsive and attentive to the needs of low-income working class and middle-class families. Considering what we're seeing these days with people believing in uh, QAnon and the like, uh, many believing that the election was stolen, um, is it even possible to to move the the, the American public in a direction uh, in the kind of direction you're suggesting? I, I absolutely do. I mean, you know, the the uh, I agree that there are um, some very troubling dynamics, and and folks who are organizing um, 
uh, uh, an alternative agenda, let's say. Um, but I also think um, in some ways, this is a very exciting time um, because more people than ever are recognizing the urgency around these issues. More people are joining these movements. And I, you know, I, for one, am, am, am confident that the movement being built right now can actually um, dismantle systemic racism. We've seen more progress on these issues in the last, let's say, nine months um, than there has been for a number of years. And if we can continue to build on that, if we can continue to come together um, and um, and organize around our common interests, then I think you know the our dreams for what we can all um, do in our lives. Uh, for what we can do for our families can get a whole lot bigger. Jim Freeman is a civil rights lawyer, director of the University of Denver's Social Movement Support Lab. His book, Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice, is published by Cornell University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you, Leonard. I really enjoyed it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else that podcasts are available. And if you can, please leave a rating or a review of our show to help others discover it. There are also links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is LeonardLopateAtLarge.com at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a minute to ask you to support the station. We need all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on, on this program coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. WBAI relies 100% on listener donations, so if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, or even if you've just discovered our in-depth one-hour interviews, why not step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to help keep this show in this historic station that brings it to you. The only one on the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored on the air. To everyone who has stepped up to support the station in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we thank you. And I hope you can join us for tomorrow's show when Sedal Neely will discuss her new book, Remote Work Revolution, Succeeding from Anywhere, a topic I can definitely relate to these days. We'll see you then.